welcome to the At Ramsey Heights podcast, your source for all of our audio messages at Ramsey Heights Baptist Church in Batesville, Arkansas. This is Pastor Brian Coates, and I hope this encouragement from God's Word connects with you and helps guide you through your next steps on your journey with God. Enjoy today's message. If you've got your Bibles with you, and I hope you do, go ahead and open those up to Isaiah chapter 7. So last week we started a new series called Waiting on the Promise. And what we've been doing is we've been going through the Old Testament and we've been tracking this promise that eventually leads us to Jesus Christ. And this promise about the birth of Jesus Christ, there's several places in the Bible you can find it, but we started last week specifically at Abraham. And we tracked how this promise that God made to Abraham come down through his son Isaac and his son Jacob and his son Judah and eventually if you follow that several more generations you get to David and following the promise all the way from David to the birth of Christ and and what we're determined to do in our Christmas series is we're celebrating the promises of God promises that he promised to bless the entire world all families in the world through Abraham's lineage promise that this undeserved blessing, this grace would be available to us. But more important than the promises, which is the same thing when you're talking about it, God, but more important than the promises is we are celebrating that God keeps his promises. And that's what Christmas is about. It's a celebration of the promise that God kept for us. And we celebrate Christmas every year with all of these different traditions. What are some of y'all's, y'all, y'all gonna have to help me out, shout it out, Christmas traditions that you have. Y'all don't celebrate Christmas. Come on, everybody in here has a Christmas tree, right? And, and you go and you uh, decorate your house with all these. That's a tradition. You guys are like one, some, thinking of something way too deep. I was thinking of like the fact that, that we put Christmas lights up. It's quickly becoming my wife and I's favorite Christmas tradition is put the baby in the back of a truck and go driving and go look at all the Christmas lights across the world. We have these traditions of, of music that we sang some of those songs this morning, some of our Christmas songs. There used to be this thing. How many of you guys have ever been caroling? Any of you guys caroled? Some of you have. I've never caroled and nobody would want me to show up at their house and sing, but if that's your thing, I will do that for you. But caroling is one of those traditions that people do. And of course, hot chocolate and different food that we eat. And maybe the big one and we talked about this last week was we give each other gifts as a reminder of the gift that God gave us with his son but there's one tradition that eclipses all of those things one one tradition that is actually in all of those things you notice that almost everything that we do at Christmas is done with other people Our biggest Christmas tradition is not how we decorate or what we do. Our biggest Christmas tradition is that we do it together. And I think that that points us to a different, uh, or that points us to something else we celebrate about Christmas. The purpose of Christmas is about being present with each other. But we celebrate by being present with each other because of God's presence with us. So our story today does pick up in Isaiah 7. We are going to keep tracking this promise. Last week, we tracked the promises up through David. And we've been looking at this promise that God is going to heal a broken world. That grace is going to be available to all through this Messiah. And what we knew last week is we went up to this Messiah will come out of the lineage of David. And so if you keep tracking the lineage of David, David had a son named Solomon. And Solomon is known for being very rich, very wise, although he didn't use it very well, and for building the temple of God, or the temple temple for God during that time. Now, to do this, to build this temple, he had to have money. And he was, of course, a government official for that time. So how do governments get their money? Taxes. And you guys all said that just like we all feel like 
taxes. And let me assure you, taxes back in the biblical times were no more popular than they are today. And after Solomon's death, he passes the kingdom down to his son, Rehoboam. And there was this rebellion against these taxes. They wanted him to take away all of these taxes from Solomon that he had used to do different works, projects, and things of that nature. And Rehoboam refused to take away the taxes. And so what you have is a revolt led by, and if this isn't confusing enough for you, a different Israelite named Jeroboam. So we have Rehoboam and Jeroboam. There's a split in the kingdom. And so think of it like the American Civil War. We have one country, the United States, because of a difference in political identity, the country splits into two countries. We have the North, which was the United States of America, and the South, which was the Confederate States of America. You, you can think of it maybe more modernly like Korea, if you, some of you lived through this. Korea was once a united nation, but in differences in how the country should be ran, it was split into North Korea and South Korea. Well, Israel did the exact same thing, and I've got a map coming up here to show you the split between these two different leaders. You have a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom keeps the name of Israel, and it is the northern ten tribes. If you don't know what those were, all of those sons of, um, of Isaac became a different tribe. All of their families over the generations, as they grew and they had more and more family, became a different tribe. So the northern kingdom is the two or ten different tribes that have come together that keep the name Israel, and they are under Jeroboam. The southern kingdom takes on the name Judah, and this is just two tribes, the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. And David's lineage through the kings, David's uh, dynasty, stays in the kingdom of Judah. So for today's purpose, when you think of the southern kingdom, you think of that as the good kingdom, because we all know the south is better than the north, right? That is the good kingdom, and the north is the bad kingdom that has rejected God's promises. We have dueling kings between these two, uh, between these two different kingdoms. Judah's kings, which are the real lineage and dynasty of David. This is the lineage of the promise that we've been talking about, where God promised that there would be royalty come from the tribe of Judah, and then out of this royalty would come this Messiah. That's all taking place in Judah. And you have a false king in Israel. Now, I told you that to set up this. There's a problem going into this about 700 B.C. Is There's a neighboring kingdom, it's not up there, but it's off to the east, called Assyria. And Assyria is gaining a lot of power it is gaining a lot of position, and they are looking at taking over different areas. So the king of the northern kingdom, the king of Israel, Pekah, has this plan to survive. Step number one, he's going to ally with another kingdom called Syria. They're going to ally themselves against Assyria. After that, step number two is that these two countries will take over Judah, take over the kingdom of Judah. And step number three is that they will unitedly fight Assyria together. Now, there is a king at this time, the king of Judah is named Ahaz. And Ahaz is obviously very stressed out about this because he is on the verge of possibly losing his kingdom. He's got to the east the threat of Assyria coming in and taking over his kingdom, and to the north the threat of Israel coming in and taking over his kingdom. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, he is. Um, already been invaded by them. So let's read in Isaiah verses 1 and 2. This, this sets up that time period here and tells us what's about to happen. So verse 1, And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, that the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, went up towards Jerusalem to war against it. So the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom here are at war, but could not prevail against it. 
And it was told the house of David, and that's the kingdom of Judah, saying Syria is confederate with Ephraim. That also means Israel. So Syria and Israel are allied together. And his heart was moved in the heart of his people as the trees of the wood are moved by the wind. So in all this news that I just explained, that Judah is under threat of attack, Ahaz responds with his heart being moved as the, as the woods are with the wind. And what that simply means is he was scared. And that's fair. You've got a kingdom to your east that wants to take you over. You've got a kingdom or two kingdoms to the north that want to take us over. But you might ask, why was he scared? Well, number one is the circumstances, but at the base of his fear, at the base of Ahaz's fear, was not the circumstances. It was the fact that he didn't trust God. And I think we could look at the world today, and we could say the same thing of us. At the base of all of our fear, isn't it just the fact that we don't trust God? See, Ahaz was focused on his current circumstances. He was focused on the fact that possibly he could lose his kingdom. But he wasn't focused on the world the way that God was. See, Ahaz should have known, and maybe he did know and just ignored it, he should have known about God's promises. And God had made a promise nearly a thousand years before this, that there would be a lineage of kings coming through David, and out of that lineage of kings would come this Messiah. And if the northern... If the northern kingdom takes over Judah, that means that that royal lineage would end and that would make God a liar. And of course, God can't be a liar. God's promises cannot be broke. So Ahaz is doing what many of us do a lot of times. He's worrying about something that will never happen, something that he should just hand over to God. And Ahaz is very, very scared about this. And God is going to continue to honor his promise by protecting the kingdom of Judah and the dynasty of David down to Ahaz. And in this moment, God comes to Ahaz. He sends the prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah, a prophet, is just somebody who brings a message from God. He sends the prophet Isaiah to Ahaz with a message about what's going to happen. And the message is very simple don't be worried. How many times does the Bible tell us that? Don't fear. Cast your anxiety on God. And that's what, the, that's what Isaiah comes to Ahaz and says. Like, God sent me with this. Don't worry. This isn't going to happen to you. The kingdom of Judah will be protected. Let's read verses 11 and 12 in chapter 7 there. So this is, this is God, seeking, or, um, God speaking to Ahaz. Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. So God comes to Ahaz and says, you're going to be okay. Ask for a sign. And this is Ahaz's uh, reply. Verse 12. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. Now, I love the way that God is working in this. And I'm going to explain this a lot here over the next few minutes. But God goes on the offensive. He comes to Ahaz. Ahaz didn't come to Isaiah and say, ask God what to do. God sends Isaiah to Ahaz and, Ahaz, and, and comes with this message, reaching out to him that you will be protected. And he offers Ahaz. He said, look, I know that you're stressed out about that. I will prove it to you. Ask for a sign and it will be done. And all that means is that this is an opportunity for God to prove himself. If you say, hey, I want a sign, prove to me you're going to do this by doing X, Y, Z, whatever those things are, then God had agreed to do that for Ahaz. It's a lot like if you've ever read the story of Gideon. 
Gideon was not sure about his calling. So he went to God and said, God, I need a sign. Can you prove to me that this is what you're telling me to do? And he takes a fur and he lays it outside of his tent and says, okay, God, if you're sure that you want me to do this, let there be a lot of dew tonight. Let there be the ground be wet, but let this fur, let it be dry. And he wakes up in the morning, goes outside, and he checks that fur, and there's dew all over the ground, but the fur is dry. Now, if you're like me, you would think, that's enough. Gideon goes, that could have been a fluke, right? And so he says, okay, God, reverse it. Make the fur wet and make the ground dry. And he wakes up the next morning, and God had done that. God, at times, in the Old Testament, would do this for his people. He would give them a sign by answering their request. And as he comes to Ahaz, he says, I'm going to protect Judah, and I'll prove it. Give me an opportunity. Tell me what to do, and I will prove it to you so that you know that I am God. And we looked at this last week and how God takes control of our salvation, how God takes care of the promise. He continually said, who would do it? God kept saying, I will do it. And here we have God doing that, protecting his promise. And Ahaz looks at God and he says, no, I don't want a sign. He says, I will not test God. And at first glance, this seems really holy because we all know the verse about Jesus being tempted and he answers with the scripture says, for it is written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And so you look at Ahaz and you go, this guy has got it together. He knows not to tempt God. But if you study a little bit deeper about Ahaz, at second glance, you realize this is actually an act of defiance by Ahaz. Ahaz, though while the legitimate king and while part of God's plan to save the world, he is not a godly king at all. Ahaz was renowned for worshiping other gods. As a matter of fact, during the time period this story is taken, the story is actually um, recorded in 2 Kings, Ahaz goes to Assyria and he allies with his enemies to keep them from attacking him to help protect him from his enemies to the north, Israel. And he goes to their temples and he sees their temples and he's like, I like this. This is pretty cool. And he comes back to Jerusalem and he goes into the temple of God and he takes things that God had commanded not to be changed and he begins to change them to look more like the pagan temples so that you could worship multiple gods there. He did so many changes to God's temple that when his son Hezekiah takes over and he orders the kingdom be restored, <clears throat> he orders the kingdom be restored, it takes them 16 days of work just to get all of the idols and all of the defilements out of the temple. He is not, he is not a godly king. In another place in 2 Kings, we see that he worships a god named Molech. And if you know anything about pagan uh, gods, Molech was a god that was worshipped through child sacrifice. Where you would take your own child, you would sacrifice them in fire to this god. And in 2 Kings it records that this king, King Ahaz, did that. He is not a godly king, but I love this about God. Through all of his sin, God still uses him. And perhaps even more important, God is still pursuing Ahaz. God comes to Ahaz and says, let me prove to you that I am God. Let me prove to you that I am in control. Let me prove to you who I am to one of the most evil men that you can possibly imagine. Now, you and I, we would write him off, right? If I introduce somebody to you guys like, hey, guys, today our guest speaker is John. And uh, just so you guys all know about John's past, John used to take churches and he would turn them into pagan temples. And oh, yeah, he sacrificed a couple of his children to some of those gods. Please welcome John as he comes to preach. Like all of us would be like, we're out of here. We're not listening to that God. But God, God didn't look at it that way. God went in pursuit of this evil man to prove to him who I was. But Ahaz doesn't want a sign because a sign is proof of God and it's a sign that God is in control. And Ahaz 
did not want to admit that God was in control. Because once you admit that God is real and God is control, that means that you must submit to him. And Ahaz did not want to change himself or his life to submit to God. Does that sound familiar from your life and my life? That we often don't want to admit God's control because we must submit to him? And here is God's response to Ahaz in this. This is verse 13 through 16. So God replies after Ahaz says, nope, I don't want that. You're not God. I've got this under control. God comes back and says, and he said, hear ye now, O house of David. It is a small thing for you to weary men, but will it weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat that he may not know to refuse that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good for before the child shall know to refuse evil and choose the good the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both of her kings and so God comes to Ahaz he offers him a promise offers him a sign and Ahaz says no I don't want to do that but God does it anyway God's still reaching out to Ahaz and says, let me prove it to you. And here's what he promises him. He says, let me tell you there will be a child. Uh, last week what we talked about is when we see prophecy in the Bible, prophecy is not something that is necessarily just supernatural where somebody can see the future. All the prophecy is is when God reveals his plan to us. And he makes a promise to us about how he's going to handle something. And so he makes this promise to Ahaz that a child will come, and before that child is old enough to know the difference between good and evil, the, the countries that are threatening you will be destroyed. If you've got your notes with you that were in your bulletin, our first note here, our first promise, it starts at number nine, because last week we did promises one through eight, so we're picking up where we left off last week. Promise number nine is a sign will be giving of a, given of a child's birth as a fulfillment of God's promise. And if you turn over to Isaiah chapter eight, you see that promise is fulfilled. This child that was promised to Ahaz as a sign of the end of his troubles fulfilled in chapter 8. Listen to this, verse 1. Moreover, the Lord said unto me, Take thee a great roll and write in it with a man's pen concerning a word that I can't say and I'm not going to try to. And I took unto me faithful witness to the record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jebekiah. And I went into the prophetess, and she conceived and bare a son. Then said the Lord to me, Call his name, that name that I can't say again, for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria, Samaria that's Israel again, shall be taken away before the king of Assyria. And so we have this fulfillment in the very next chapter. There was a promise that a child will be born. And before the child reaches a certain age, that Damascus and Israel will no longer exist. In the very next, in the very next part of it, we see a child born, which God says, before this child is old enough to say, my mother and my father, um, Israel and Syria will be gone. It says this child will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, sometimes when you see that name, Emmanuel, it, it seems like you would think, well, that's not his name. It was that other name that Brian can't pronounce. But sometimes in a prophecy, God uses a name, not necessarily as a physical name, but to prove a function of God's protection. So Isaiah and his wife have this son, and before the child learns to speak, Israel and Syria fall. And God is just amazing in what he's doing for Ahaz here. 
in this prophecy of this child. Let's go back over God's actions. He interjects himself into a problem and he commits to fix it. He offers himself to Ahaz and he is rejected and refused. Even though God is rejected and refused, he gives him a sign anyway and he keeps his promise all to pursue a wicked and evil man that did not deserve God. All to show Ahaz that he was God. A man that will not acknowledge and will not submit to him. And as we look at this story, I think that is a picture of you and me. That though we will not submit, though we have rejected God in our life, he is in continual pursuit of humankind. And that's what the story of Ahaz in this, this verse is about. Now I can see it on some of y'all's faces. Some of y'all are a little bit grumpy today because you're sitting here thinking, Brian, what about Christmas? Ah, y'all are laughing because you know it's right. Where's the Christmas story? I don't care about some crusty old king back in the day. I don't care about his problems. This is Christmas. Tell me about baby Jesus. And some of you know that verse. Some of you know Isaiah 7, 14. And you're like, Brian, you didn't take that where I thought you were going to take that. Well, well, let me explain why I just explained everything that I did. See, the story of the pursuit of Ahaz shows a bigger picture of God's grace. In a lot of places in the Bible, when you have a prophecy, it will have a dual fulfillment. What that means is, is God will fulfill that prophecy twice. There is a near fulfillment, and that is usually called the partial fulfillment, and there is a far fulfillment. That things will happen in the, in the present that will fulfill that, and things will then happen in the future. And what God is doing is he uses present circumstances to paint a picture of how he is going to handle problems in the future by how he handles them now. We saw this last week in the prophecy given to David about his son. God told David, you will have a son who will build a house for God, and I will establish his throne forever. We see the partial fulfillment of that in his son Solomon. Solomon was David's son. Solomon built a temple for God, but it was only partial. It wasn't complete because that throne was not established forever. We see the full fulfillment of that in Jesus Christ, who comes and he redefines what it means to rebuild the temple, and his throne is established forever. In the book of Daniel, Daniel has a prophecy that does the exact same thing. There's this uh, persecution of God's people that Daniel prophesies. The near fulfillment of that was a Greek emperor named Antichus. And Antichus was horrible against the Jews. He slaughtered them. But if you read Daniel today, most theologians will tell you that Daniel was also prophesying the far fulfillment of the prophecy was about the Antichrist in Revelation. And so what we have in Isaiah chapter 7 is we have a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. The near fulfillment is a child's birth that separates, uh, symbolizes God's protection of Judah. But it symbolizes something bigger. The picture that God is using to show us something about ourself and God's plan to protect us. Because Ahaz is just a picture of humankind, isn't he? He refuses to admit he's not God. He rejects God's control. He rebels against God, and yet God's grace chases him anyway, just like it chases us. And that's the far fulfillment of the prophecy. That's what it's about. It's about God's grace chasing you and me, God's grace coming after us. But we know that the child mentioned in Isaiah chapter 8 is only a partial fulfillment because in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, there's a major part of the story that didn't fit. In Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, it says that this child that is coming will be born of a, what? You guys know it? A virgin. 
a child born of a virgin. And we see Isaiah records in chapter 8 that he and his wife were physically intimate, resulting in the conception of the child in Isaiah 8. So, there must be a future fulfillment, because all of God's promise was not taken care of. Promise number 10 is this child will be born of a virgin. And for centuries, for centuries, people waited on a child born of a virgin as proof of the Messiah. The Jews waited for this sign, that this was undeniable proof that this person was sent by God to be the Messiah. Larry King, many of you guys know him. He was a famous interviewer, I believe on CNN. And he was um, known for interviewing tens of thousands of people. And he was asked one time, they interviewed the interviewer, and he was asked one time, if you had a chance to interview anybody from history, who would you interview? He said, well, it's easy. I would, I would interview Jesus Christ. And that's an interesting answer from Larry King because Larry King was a Jew. He doesn't believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. He's still waiting on Messiah. They said, why would you interview Jesus Christ? You don't even believe in him. He said, I would interview him and I'd ask him one question. Were you really born of a virgin? Because that is undisputable, undeniable proof of the Messiah. And so as we follow God's promise here, we're waiting on a child to come of a virgin as proof of being the Messiah. And we see that fulfillment in the New Testament back in Matthew chapter 1 where we were last week. This is Matthew 1 verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was a spouse to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Ghost. What that means to say found with child of the Holy Ghost was this child had no father because Mary was a virgin. And if you continue reading past that, if you read down to Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 1 verse 23, it quotes Isaiah 14. It says, all of these things happened so that it would be fulfilled what was said that a virgin would bear a child. So we're pointing to this promise, even in Isaiah, even in the circumstances of King Ahaz, of this promise that was made to Abraham and Isaac and Judah and David, that there would be this complete fulfillment of a child. And just like Ahaz, this child comes at a time when there's a fight between two kingdoms. Between two kingdoms vying for control of the world. Kingdom number one is what the Bible calls God's kingdom. The kingdom of heaven this kingdom that is God trying to rebuild, rebuild what he originally made the world to be. And the second one is the evil kingdom, just like Israel, that denies God and rejects him as king of the world. That's the kingdom of sin. And when the Bible talks about us and it talks about this world and it talks about the future, it uses the terminology of kings and princes and kingdoms, principalities and powers being in, in, in contention and battles raging for the, um, for the world. And I know what we like to think is, we like to think as we look at this, okay, there's a battle between God's kingdom and a battle between the kingdom of sin. And I'm on God's side because that's the good side. And we're always the good cowboy in the movie. We're always on the right side of the superhero. And therefore, when we look at the Bible, we interject ourselves and say, I am on the good side. I'm on God's side in this. But the Bible tells us something very different. What the Bible tells us is that all of us, when we're born, we are citizens of the kingdom of sin. And we spend our lives rejecting God, rejecting his power. But here's the problem with that. Being a citizen of the kingdom of sin comes at a great cost. Because just like the kingdoms of Israel and Syria, the kingdom of sin will be destroyed. And all of its inhabitants and all of its citizens will be. 
And, and the thing about this is, is just like Ahaz, God pursues us in our time of peril. Because we were in danger of being destroyed by this kingdom. And he sends in his promise, he sends this child named Jesus. And it was sent for us because you and I could not save ourselves from this kingdom of sin. Now this brings us to one more question with the prophecy. Because the prophecy says that a child will be born of a virgin and then that child's name will be Emmanuel. But we know that Jesus' name was not Emmanuel, it was Jesus. And what's important to understand about this time is that names were not so much your personal identifier. That wasn't what was important about them. It was about the function of your name. For example, the name Jesus literally means God will save or Yahweh will save. And so it tells us a lot about Jesus, that he was named Jesus, that his purpose is to rescue us from the kingdom of sin before we're destroyed. See, this kingdom of sin destroys people in, in three different phases. The first one it destroys us in is in this, this worldly phase where, where sin will, will advertise itself as fun and good and happiness for you. And it will draw you into sin. And then it will break you and twist you and destroy everything you love. And then sin will sit there and laugh at you as you weep because of the circumstances. That's what sin does in this world. Secondly, sin destroys us bodily. We've all... We've all seen too much death over the past year or two years with, with the pandemic and, and with different sicknesses that have become more popular over the past several decades. We've seen too much death. All of that is a result of sin destroying the world. And last and probably the worst, or not probably, definitely the worst, is sin destroys us spiritually because the kingdom of sin keeps us forever separated from God. That means that if we die without finding Jesus Christ, without letting him save us because we can't save ourselves, we spend our eternity separated to get from God because of our sin. And people think about hell as just a, a, a place with maybe fire. I've heard some people say it'll be a party down there. But when we talk about hell and the separation, listen to this. There are things that we know will not be in hell. In hell, there will never be peace because Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace and we're separated from him. In hell, where sin takes us, there will never be love because God is love and we are separated from him. In hell, there will never be joy because joy is something only given by God. And this child, when Jesus comes and he takes on the name of Jesus, that means God will save. What he says is, I offer you an escape from that. You can't escape it yourself. I will save you from it. And then the second name, the Emmanuel, explains how the first will work. Remember, Emmanuel means God with us. And once again, it's a picture of Jesus' purpose here. That, that distance between us and God because of our sin is taken away with the birth of this child. Promise number 11 is that the child will be called God with us. Now, when we look at this, this virgin birth, we know that's special because nobody here was born of a virgin. We all came into the world the regular way. As a matter of fact, only once in the world has somebody entered the world by a virgin. Only once has that ever happened. And so there is no way that this person, this child, this baby that is born is not special. As a matter of fact, it's not just the fact that it identifies Jesus as God. It's the only way God could be with us. Because as this child is born, he has an earthly mother. Therefore, he is completely earthly. He is 100% human, but he has a godly father. Therefore, he is 100% God. 
And so in this, with the virgin birth, this is the key of everything that we look at 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 Christmas, is that Jesus did not come as a political leader. He came as God in the most literal sense to be with us. And so we look at that promise that God made Abraham. Going back to last week, the very first promise, God made Abraham a promise that said, you will be a great nation. And out of this great nation, all of the families of the world will be blessed. But it never says what that blessing is. But the blessing is a promise of a relationship with God where we can connect to him and access him. Promise number 12 is the child brings God's presence to us forever. And that's why when we celebrate Christmas, we we celebrate it as a group. We celebrate it with people. We celebrate it with presence, not presence like you give, like presence like you're together with each other. We celebrate the fact that Jesus Christ came to be with us by being with others. And our salvation is found only in the fact that he came to be here. And yet, we rejected him, just like that King Ahaz. Jesus offers himself to us, and we're like, no, God, I don't don't want that. I don't want to be your follower. I don't want you to fix the brokenness. I like the brokenness. I I like the world. We don't want to give our life to Christ. And and this is what it tells us about God and being rejected. In the Bible, God tells us about rejecting him is the same thing as being rejected by a spouse. As a matter of fact, many times in the Bible, when people walk away from God, God calls it adultery. It means the same thing as your spouse cheating on you. And when we sin, that's what we do to God. We cheat on him. And yet God still pursues us. He still wants to be with us and he still says, I will take your punishment. We have this problem with Jesus in the way that we view him, I guess we should say that, where we compartmentalize Jesus. Like it's Christmas time and we sing away in a manger and we celebrate the peace of the little baby child in a, in a stable somewhere. And then here in a few months, it'll be Easter And we'll see Jesus as a grown man stretched out on a cross. And we'll have this picture of Jesus bleeding for our sins. But here's what's important about about Christmas is the man who died on the cross was no less innocent than the baby in the world. And I don't want to be vulgar, but the truth is, if you can let that image in your brain of that little child being nailed to a cross, it's the exact same thing. You see, Jesus came here to purchase us from sin, to save us because we couldn't save ourselves. And the question is, is why do we keep rejecting him when he comes to us and says, I've done the work, when he spends the world pursuing us even though we don't deserve it? Glenita, if you want to come up here. The promise of Christmas that we celebrate is not just a story of a child in a manger. The promise of Christmas that we celebrate is the fact that he made himself available to us. And all he asks from us is that we accept him as our savior. He's done all of the rest of the work. He was perfect and gave his life for you so that you didn't have to give your eternal life. If you'd like to make that choice today or if there's something you would like to pray about, this is our reflection time. This is available to you. I would love to pray with you or pray for you. I'd love to explain to you more about what it looks like to put your faith in Christ. But don't reject him again today. Please stand.